Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Ladines Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. Can you imagine all of us here on this call that somebody's going to school and they need bodyguards to go to school? Years later, we celebrate and we retcon that story and say, this is a proud moment in American history. It's a shameful moment. It's morally reprehensible and politically indefensible then and now. But again, we don't tell the truth about that moment. That's our guest, Dr. Peniel Joseph, founding director of the LBJ School's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again as we continue to explore our fundamental civil and constitutional rights. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardena. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara. I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Good day, Jackie. My name is Mitch Winnick, and I'm the president and dean of Monterey College of Law. And we also have programs in San Luis Obispo, Bakersfield, and Santa Rosa. Mitch, one of the threads that has woven its way through almost all of our episodes, and something I know that we've talked about at length, is whether the United States can meet the promise of its founding a multiracial, pluralistic democracy. Um, When the U.S. declared independence from Britain in 1776, it did so with a bold statement, quote, from the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. But the Declaration of Independence was more of a vision for a new country. It wasn't the reality then, and it isn't the reality now, we've been struggling to turn that vision into a reality for over 200 years. Jackie, our guest today is going to help us understand this struggle to put our current political environment in a historical context. Dr. Peniel Joseph holds a joint professorship appointment at the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the History Department in the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also the founding director of the LBJ School's Center for the Study of Race and Democracy and the associate dean for Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. He is the author of seven books, most recently, The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century, which recently won the 2023 Robert F. Kennedy Book Award. Congratulations on that, Dr. Joseph. And welcome to Sidebar. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Mitch. Dr. Joseph, I'm going to start us off with a softball question. I want to start with the end goal. How would you define multiracial, pluralistic democracy? How do we know that we've achieved it? And I want to note that I added pluralistic to that, because while your book is focused on the struggle for racial justice, I read your work as looking beyond race to equal dignity and citizenship, regardless of faith, sexual orientation, gender identity. Is that an accurate representation of your work? Absolutely. 
So easy question. How do you define that? How do we know when we've reached it? Jackie, that's a great question. The way in which I think about multiracial democracy is intersectional. So it's inter- it's interested in people, regardless of ability, regardless of faith, sexuality, gender, gender orientation, identification, but also things like background, meaning that we we lose any kind of semblance of a, of a class or caste system in that sense. And so I think the way in which we'll know we've achieved it is when, even if there are inequalities like homelessness or poverty or unemployment, that when we think about different groups of people who are by identity or geography, we're not going to see disproportionality when it comes to social economic indicator. So we won't see if your population is 11% in an, a fair and equitable society, you're not going to be three times your population incarcerated and 20 times less access to wealth or law school or the profession. That's not going to be there. And that's why really, even if we achieve the multiracial democracy, which I hope we do, that doesn't necessarily mean within our liberal democratic capitalist system, we've ended inequalities. What it means is that we've ended a lot of inequalities. If, if we got Black, white, Hispanic, other groups, Asian American, Pacific Islander, first gen, people with mental illness to be doing as well as some of our white students who graduate from public schools, some of our elite white students, sometimes some of our elite Black and students of color, or who have wealth or access, we're, we're going to be doing much better. But in that society, what we would see, for instance, with mass incarceration, we would see that those who are incarcerated, just because of their skin color or their zip code, they weren't more likely to be incarcerated. We, now, th- those of us who are abolitionists would still have problems with that society that I'm talking about, right? It's not a completely equal society, but what it does mean is imagine a boardroom in America right now that is demographically representative. So that's still gonna be a predominantly white boardroom because of our demographics, but maybe the white boardroom is 70% white. Maybe that's split between white males and females. And then the whole other 30% of not just the boardroom, but the shareholders are sort of people of color demographically represented. And in state by state, it would look different because there would be some states, like I live in the state of Texas, the Latino population here is over a quarter of the state. The black population is around 12%, but there's more black people in Texas than any other state in terms of aggregate. It would look diverse based on how Texas, California, where you all are at, would look different, right? But California is certainly a melting pot, but it's not a melting pot when it comes to who really succeeds in Silicon Valley, who gets access to the tech money, the tech billions. And so that's how multiracial democracy would look. It would look where when we look at our social economic indicators, including those who get access to elite spaces and places, wealth and opportunity would be much more synergistically spread out. And then when it comes to negative social economic indicators, there would be no group that is scapegoated for criminalization or food injustice or systemic punishment. That's how multiracial democracy would look. But saying that because we're in a capitalist society and capitalism does create winners and losers, 
that's still not an equitable society. But what we have now, and sometimes scholars, just like critical race theory, the real critical race theory, not the critical race theory hoax saying that we're teaching it to five-year-olds, but the idea of racial capitalism is a term coined by Cedric Robinson, who is a historian and theorist. And that really just speaks to this idea that in the United States of America, the kind of capitalism that we've had historically is a racialized capitalism that's based on the super exploitation of black people and people of color in this caste system. I'm going to hit pause for a moment. There's a lot in there, but I think one of the really helpful takeaways for me was it's not about inequality disappearing. It's about equity within the inequality and injustice that we see. And and I think that's a helpful thing. And I know Mitch has a follow-up as well. Jackie, I, I was thinking the same thing, but in a slightly different way. Dr. Joseph, you talk about the complexity of this and how history is not linear. For example, Jackie and I both are deans of Opportunity Law Schools. It's unique in California, and we focus on the diversity of our student body reflecting the communities we serve. We have been very successful at that. For example, we have about 60% students of color in our law school. I was thinking back to when I was in law school, there were 70 people in my section. This is 1976. Two black males, two black females, and a handful of Hispanics. It was not even close to the distribution of the population in Texas back in the 1970s. Fast forward to our law schools, and we have 60% of students of color that almost directly reflect the community we serve. However, to your point, you look at the actual licensing in California, and we still have a licensing system that has a systemic racist aspect to it, and our population is 30% of lawyers of color with a barrier that the Supreme Court of California refuses to change. So I love the fact that you talk about these are complex issues. They're in the context of the present. They have the history that gets us here, but there's so much work still to do. Yeah, and I think that's a great example, like the progressive outcomes that you're having at your law schools is great, but it still bumps up into this larger systemic problem. But the reason why systemic racism, and I might add, because I think about all this, um, you know, Jackie Mitch intersectionally, and I write about it in the third reconstruction. So I think about gender, and I think about ability, and I think about immigration status and citizenship status and religion, sexuality, so much other things that are connected. The way the system works now is enriching and enveloping and embracing enough people who refuse to want to change this. We really do introduce a kind of new American political order, one that's really connected to redistributive justice in ways that will really uh, disturb and harm the status quo. So even though I firmly believe, just like your, your law school, there's going to be more good outcomes for people but the reason why the California bar is keeping the 30% ceiling, they don't want to see what the reverberations of stopping that ceiling would be. We pick on the California Supreme Court, but when Jackie and I and our schools worked on trying to get this process changed, the minority bar associations would not get on board with us 
because they were fearful that the effort was an effort, at their words, to dumb the exam down so that they could get in. And then they would say to us, after all, we got in, others should as well. That's very, very unfortunate because, again, it just shows you you have so many different special interests who are really focused on preserving their power and their strength. People who are doing successfully and doing well, they're doing it in this unequal system. And if we shatter this system, they're going to be frightened, super frightened out of existence because it's the way in which it's working now is working for them. So everybody who's found a sinecure in this system is scared to death of this system ending. We're going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, our guest, Dr. Peniel Joseph, will help us better understand how Reconstruction eras are defined. Are you getting ready to start your bar prep journey? Kaplan is the only major bar review offering live instruction with both live and on-demand classes. With Kaplan's bar prep, you get the ideal amount of structure and guidance no matter how you choose to prep. Join a real-time or on-demand class, stay on track with personalized study plans, and learn from expert attorneys. Kaplan helps thousands of professionals pass the bar each year. Start your journey today. Find your bar review at captest.com bar. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, trellis.law. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Peniel Joseph, a scholar, teacher, and author of the Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. Talk to me about how we can tell that a Reconstruction era has ended. For a second, I'll talk about Reconstruction and redemption. So much of American history and what we're facing now boils down to stories and narratives we tell each other about ourselves. So what Reconstruction or Reconstructionists are, those are the supporters of multiracial democracy and redemptionists are advocates of the lost cause and that racial status quo that grew during antebellum America during racial slavery. And sometimes people will call it white supremacy as well. Those are the two stories that have been in conflict even before the Civil War. That conflict led to the Civil War, but make no mistake about it, we have so much great historical scholarship and scholarship from legal scholarship too, on these pitched battles and legal cases, physical battles uh, between abolitionists and those who were pro-slavery. You even had somebody like John Calhoun, who's former vice president of the United States, former governor, senator, South Carolina. He comes up with the nullification and the secessionist philosophy that says, he says that this is found in the constitution, more so than the Declaration of Independence, but that if we don't agree with what the federal government's saying, 
we only entered as independent sovereign states and we can leave as independent sovereign states. So the reconstruction and the redemptionist story that we've been telling each other is hugely, hugely uh, important. Dr. Joseph, for those of us who are not historians, can you give us a better definition of the term, the first reconstruction? When we think about that first period of reconstruction between 1865 and 1898, when you think about the ending and like how do these things end and begin, I argue that it's this really 33-year period between the ratification of the, the 13th Amendment, Juneteenth, all of that, the white riot in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is really the sort of only successful in that way political coup in American history, where just violence ushers in a new order in Wilmington, North Carolina. Wilmington goes from being a 50-50 Black city to less than 6%. President of the United States doesn't talk about the massacre and sort of white Democrats take over through state militia and through just armed violence. And when you think about the ends of these reconstructions, the end is always punctuated by something epical happening that is about racial and political retrenchment. When you think about the first reconstruction, you can see this in Wilmington, North Carolina. And how would you define the second reconstruction? I would probably argue, even though I say in the book, the second Reconstruction is 1954 to 68, I say it engineers, it ushers in a 50-year racial justice consensus. And I would really say the end of that is really Shelby v. Holder. And I just want to let people know the Shelby case that is being referred to here is the case out of the Supreme Court that essentially gutted the Voting Rights Act and really ushered in a much more aggressive approach to voter suppression, especially in the southern states who were being monitored under the Voting Rights Act in ways that could have prevented what we're seeing now in terms of the voter laws that are being issued in some of those state legislatures. Some people go even further than that. Some people say that that case has ended voter rights for the current period of time. The the gerrymandering that's going on unchecked with the Supreme Court, that's unlikely to change that. This is a new era. And it's, as Dr. Joseph said, has circled us back to an era that we thought we had grown from. And we can say, I mean, we have a Supreme Court that's a redemptionist court. When you think about these narratives and these stories of reconstruction versus redemption, is that the positive of people like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or Rabbi uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker, Dolores Huerta, others, Cesar Chavez, was during the second Reconstruction, even Bobby, you know, Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, uh, they were able to, at some points, call out what was actually happening. Here's who George Wallace is, but also here's who Barry Goldwater is, you know what I mean? And by the 70s, Phyllis Schlafly and what happened with the Equal Rights Amendments, those folks were redemptionists. They were telling us a story about American history where racial progress, gender progress, multiracial democracy was bad, and they were using anti-democratic means to halt that progress at times successfully. Shelby and sort of the, the, the takeover of the courts Um, And we see this in the um, Citizens United case. We see it in Parents versus Teachers, the schoolhouse case of 2007 with Roberts, no voluntary racial integration. We see it in a number of different cases, the Dobbs case now. These are redemptionist courts. And I can go back to 1883 in a series of cases that law professors called the U.S., the civil rights cases from 1883. 
even before Plessy in 1896, where you're seeing the rollback. Remember, because of 1865 and then because of citizenship in 1868 and the Equal Protection Clause, and because of voting rights in 1870, when they were ratified, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, those are the Reconstructionist Amendments. And then we have the, the Enforcement Acts and the Anti-Klan Acts and the Congressional Hearings Against the Klan in May of 1871. This was all settled law. So the idea, think of it, you all are professors, you're deans, you're, you're thought leaders. The idea of racially segregating anything, that's all settled law. You can't pick and choose and say, no, 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment don't apply to social relations or they don't apply to this or that. No, that's actually just settled law. It's just that you you found a redemptionist court that wanted to tell a different story. And instead of looking at the emancipationist legacy of the, of the, of the Civil War, they did something else. But that was all settled. And that's why even you know somebody like Malcolm X, and I talk about him in the Third Reconstruction, is constantly telling people that, look, I'm not anti-white. I'm not a segregationist or a separatist. If white folks wanted brotherhood, this was all settled, should have been settled during Reconstruction. That's why he's outraged over the movement for radical citizenship by King, because Malcolm is convinced that everybody has human dignity that's God-given or from Allah. All citizenship is for all of us, not just American, I mean global citizenship. All citizenship is, is the external recognition of your God-given dignity. That's all it is. Whether you're Muslim, Jewish, atheist, you all have dignity by virtue of birth. Whether you're disabled or able-bodied, you all have dignity. And so all citizenship is, is a recognition of that by these different bodies, which is why dignity is, should be the last hill we fight on. That's a perfect point on which to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to move our discussion into the heart of what Dr. Joseph defines as the second reconstruction, what most of us think of as the civil rights movement of the 1950s. The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Monterey College of Law. I am a first-generation law student. I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede. To learn more or apply, visit MontereyLaw.edu. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law School prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm. Law practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. ProCertis is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. 
come check us out at www.prosertis.com. Welcome back to our discussion with Dr. Peniel Joseph, author of The Third Reconstruction, America's Struggle for Racial Justice in the 21st Century. In 1957, the National Guard was mobilized to facilitate the integration of Little Rock High School in Arkansas. Many history books celebrate this event as a positive example of moving American civil rights forward. However, Dr. Joseph, you ask us to consider that framing and to think about how it also reflects on the recent January 6th mob violence at the U.S. Capitol. Why should we have a thousand troops escort little black girls into Little Rock Central High School? So from Malcolm X's perspective, and I agree with his perspective, 1957, what happened in Little Rock is a catastrophe. It's not something, King has a different perspective in 57. He's writing a, a memo to Eisenhower praising President Eisenhower for sending the troops. But the fact that we have a mob when we have kids going to school, it's a huge disgrace. Can't everybody see? It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace in 57 and it's a disgrace now. I know I wouldn't have sent my daughter into Little Rock Central High School. I wouldn't have sent my little daughter in there. No, no, not at all. She's got too much dignity to do that, even as the people who did had huge dignity and grace, but it's showing that the country, it's in a catastrophic state. Can you imagine all of us here on this call that somebody's going to school and they need, they need bodyguards to go to school? And in your, what, years later, we celebrate and we retcon that story and say, this is a proud moment in American history. It's a shameful moment. It's morally reprehensible and politically indefensible then and now. But again, we don't tell the truth about that moment. Even as those young people there are heroes, what about the mob? Way before Donald Trump, there's that mob. And what does that mob tell us about who we are? Those are, those are white children and teens and adults. This is not Boston and busing. This is 57 in Little Rock Central High School. And that scene was played out throughout the entire country for decades and decades. Let's take that scene to recent history. The narrative, as you say, the stories are narratives. The narrative of January 6th and the, tr the attempt in just a matter of weeks to restructure that attempted history to say this was not a mob, this was not led by white supremacists, this is not an insurrection, these were God-loving, democratic, principled individuals who were out for a stroll. So, so take us forward. Your, your book came out in 2022. As you've said, history doesn't stop. But how do you frame that in this context? It sounds like it's the same discussion. You know, it's the same discussion. But one thing I'll say, Mitch, is that it's been really accelerated in an Orwellian manner. George Orwell is obviously, the, you know, the writer of, of authoritarianism and fascism and the way in which that coincides. In his case, he was talking about both sort of the authoritarianism of the Soviet Union and the authoritarianism of Nazi Germany. But he was also talking about a creeping authoritarianism of the Western world and sort of the new world order that came out of the Second World War and telling people alongside of Hannah Arendt and many others to be very, very careful because authoritarianism 
has a kind of creep, whether people think that they're heroes or villains or reconstructionists or redemptionists, you can have a kind of authoritarianism bent in you. I, I think what we're seeing with January 6th is really remarkable because even as we've had a confederacy for over 150 years in this country, we've never had a redemptionist have this kind of power and control over media narratives, whether we're talking about Twitter or the Koch brothers, or obviously MAGA and Trump, or uh, the leader of the Senate, Mitch McConnell, in this precise, specific way. And so we do have, we're, we're in a, a lot of danger here from redemptionists. The, I think the positive is that we also have reconstructionists who've really told us a very specific story about American history that's very multiracial. I'm thinking about the 1619 Project, I'm thinking about the young people in the March for Our Lives and the Women's March. I'm thinking about the, the folks who are doing great work around LGBTQIA for people of color all over the country and, and doing marches and demonstrations. Certainly the immigrants' rights movement as well. And certainly, of course, Black Lives Matter. So I think part of the reaction of trying to normalize January 6th and retcon that narrative was a backlash against uh, the reconstructionist story that took hold in 2020 and really helped elect Biden-Harris as this reconstructionist administration. Certainly they faced a lot of headwinds, but the election itself, 81 to 74 million, was this victory for multiracial democracy. How do you see the efforts to ban books and impose educational gag orders as interfering with the efforts of reconstruction. They absolutely interfere. And I mean, it's we're preventing Americans from learning right here in my state of Texas, K through 12, where you're basically preventing and banning black history. You're gonna ban the history of teaching about the Holocaust. You're banning teaching about white abolitionists and white working class activists, uh, gender queer and, and women activists and feminists of all stripes. I think that really impacts the work of reconstruction because so much of it is about stories and storytelling and sharing a story with each other about all of us. I teach the 1619 Project and the book form, what's so brilliant is that you have Native American history in there, you get AAPI history, you get Latino history, you get so many different people's histories and how they intersect with the larger American struggle and Black American struggle. So not understanding that really precludes us from knowing who we are and having a sense of ourselves. And it furthers a kind of division because this idea that if we teach the full spectrum of American history, we're somehow unpatriotic and we somehow don't love the country is the furthest thing from the truth. So we definitely see this redemptionist vision in terms of voter suppression, the CRT hoax, the anti-DEI measures that have passed or are passing in different legislatures. Florida and Texas are the leading reactionary states, but this is impacting all of us. And when you do this, this is where you're telling a negative story about the country and negative in the sense of you're constraining people's ability to speak truth to power and speak truth to each other. So we're back to you know Arthur Miller's The Crucible and we're back to the House Un-American Activities Committee. So this has occurred before, and it's happening again right before our eyes. And it was always bigger than the you know, Wisconsin Senator Joe McCarthy. It was connected to the Truman Doctrine. It was connected to, to splitting the world up into two sides and making the argument 
that the other side was an evil empire and we were the good guys. And we're doing the same thing right now, but we're doing it domestically. And when you see the former president of the United States talk about black capital police officers as thugs, you get the message, right? You get the message where, you know, none of us are going to be safe if somebody's saying that about a black law enforcement <laughs> official who is up against that dangerous, treasonous, white supremacist MAGA crowd. The positive is that tens of millions of people know the real story and are eager to spread and dis disseminate that story as well. Please stay with us as we take our final break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we'll talk with Dr. Peniel Johnson about where we go from here as part of the third reconstruction that hopefully will move our country forward towards greater racial justice. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An Honorable Profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, An Honorable Profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. Dr. Joseph, I have a suspicion. I know the answer to this question before we get started, but you've spent a lot of your academic work and your writing honoring civil rights activists. They worked in difficult situations, but let's bring it back to the other thing you say, which is each of us have a role to play. But you're in Texas, and some of the most abusive yeah. laws and efforts are going on in Texas. Do you wonder whether that's the place for you to do your work? I think actually Texas is ground zero, and this is really a, actually a great place to be, even as it's a difficult and challenging place to be. We have more black people in Texas than any other state. We have a huge, rich, multiracial history, a large Latino, Latinx population, a growing Asian American Pacific Islander population. I think this is a really, really important place to be because I think like California, Texas is really a huge experiment in multiracial democracy. It has a, a huge history of racial slavery and conquest, racial injustice against indigenous people and Mexican-Americans and Mexicans and black people. But it also has a huge history of those people carving out amazing spaces and places for themselves. Think about Houston's Emancipation Park and you think about Juneteenth in Texas, and Juneteenth is the, the, you know, the birth of a new American, African-American freedom, which has now become a federal holiday in 2021. I think Texas is extraordinary in the sense that if you can make multiracial democracy work here in Texas and thrive here in Texas, it has such huge implications for the rest of the country. Despite all the challenges we've talked about today, you end your message by saying the answer is love over fear. I think the way forward is we really have to uh, believe seriously in what Dr. King called building the beloved community, where 
we're going to have a country where we don't have economic disparity, where we don't have racial injustice, and where we don't scapegoat anyone. I think one of the lessons I learned from my mother is that as soon as somebody starts saying it's this group of people's fault, you've got to walk out of the room. If we're going to build a beloved community, we have to base it on truth. We have to talk about the beautiful and bitter parts of the, the story of America. I think those of us who are in this space have to say we're doing it because we love the country, that we love America as imperfect and as flawed as America is. I think we have to really seriously think about that and think that, you know, there is something called a moral compass, a national moral compass. The slogan of Dr. King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and I'll close on this, was to redeem the soul of America. Until we get justice being what love looks like in public, uh, we're not going to have the country that we, we all want. Mitch, one of the things that I found really helpful about Dr. Joseph's book was the framing between Reconstructionist and Redemptionist. And I think even when he was talking about the Supreme Court decisions and a Redemptionist court versus a Reconstructionist court, it really helped me think about judicial philosophy and judicial ideology different. You know, we kind of talk about it through the lens of strict constructionist or an originalist or uh, the living, breathing constitution. But I think seeing it through the lens of redemptionist versus reconstructionist simplifies it and really allows me to see the threads that emerge in our legal system with much more clarity. Jackie, there are two things I take away from this. Let me start with the one that's most concerning, and it came up in our discussion of Voting Rights Act. When he talked about the opportunity to achieve justice and equality at the local level, when you don't have access to free and fair elections, it's very difficult to accomplish that. And when you have a Supreme Court that voted 5-4 to say that's no longer necessary, at least that's my take on it, it makes it very concerning. And it's unlikely that this court is going to change that anytime soon. So I'm deeply concerned that some of the legal structures that we are setting up are the exact type of systemic racism that he talks about is part of this ongoing cycle in the Reconstruction effort. So we have a lot of work to do on that. That said, on a positive note, I too found him helpful in helping me understand about the context of history and to remind us that just because there are these setbacks, we have had these setbacks before, there was a first Reconstruction, there was a second Reconstruction, and he's now encouraging us that there's the opportunity for a third Reconstruction, and that ends with a message of hope that I find very positive. So I want to thank everyone for joining us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to hear what's on your mind, and you can do that by going to sidebarmedia.org. Thank you to our producer and musical muse who composed and performed all of the music in today's episode, David Eakin. And thank you to our marketing director and social media millennial, Gogo Zoger. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law 
are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.